Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oliver Wyman's Reinventing Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Paul Ricard. Welcome to Reinventing Insurance. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mick Maloney, who is a partner and global head of insurance, asset management, and actuarial at Oliver Wyman. Welcome, Mick. Thanks, Paul. Delighted to be here. So why don't we start? Actually, before we start, I want to say it's pretty cool to have sort of a crossover episode here because this is the Reinventing Insurance podcast. And you're also running the Reinventing Insurance newsletter uh, for Oliver Wyman, where you're sharing a lot of perspectives about the industry. So I feel like there's a little bit of a, of a meeting of the worlds here, which is going to be pretty cool. <laughs> Cross-pollination. Exactly. <laughs> so maybe why don't we start with um, you telling us a little bit about your role and what's in your purview at Oliver Wyman. Sure. Yeah. As you know, I lead our insurance asset management and uh, actuarial practices globally. That, that's probably... 700, 750 of our, of our folks with a concentration in the US and Europe, though with a solid and growing footprint in Asia-Pac, uh, where we're in uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and, uh, and Japan, and uh, growing pretty, uh, pretty rapidly there. And we, uh, again, as you know, serve life PNC insurers within our actuarial practice, uh, healthcare insurers, and uh, asset managers, and with a kind mm -hmm. of, I'm sure as we'll get into a very uh, significant overlap between asset managers and insurers right. uh, in particular. And we consult with them on uh, really a full range of topics from more strategy and management consulting issues in terms of how do I grow my top line? Am I operating efficiently? Am I innovating enough? Am I innovating at scale? Should I buy or sell uh, things in terms of helping me kind of accelerate uh, how I meet my strategy? And then on the actuarial side, obviously, a lot of uh, work around pricing, uh, reserving, and increasingly around, you know, is my actuarial function operating as efficiently right. as I'd like it to be and giving me the, the kind of insights that I, uh, that I want. If it moves uh, in insurance, we, uh, we tend to deal with it. And again, as yep. you know, uh, I know we'll get into this a little bit as well, but um, we're obviously sitting in, by market cap, uh, the world's third largest public insurance entity in, yep. in terms of Marsh McLennan. And we, uh, we obviously collaborate pretty closely with uh, Marsh, Guy Carpenter and Mercer, particularly mm -hmm. when they, uh, they can be helpful to, uh, to our clients. They're obviously very, very big kind of intermediaries sitting on a lot of data, sitting on a lot of expertise. And I would say, again, as you know, we, we like to think that we're pretty unique in, in having management consulting strategy actuarial sitting within that kind of, uh, data lake, uh, right. as it were, and, and the ability to bring those kind of insights to, uh, to clients. So that's, uh, that's us. Terrific. Well, definitely, we're going to have a lot to cover that spans your remit over the next uh, few minutes. And, you know, we'll talk about in this episode, obviously, the state of the industry and some of the big opportunities for insurers. But before we go there, and, you know, you mentioned Marsh McLennan, I think if we take a little bit of a detour, going back to your background and your prior roles, I know, among others, that Marsh McLennan has been a, a big part of your career. And I know actuarial sciences is also a big part of your career. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background before we go forward together? Yeah, there, there isn't much of it that's uh, disconnected from uh, Marsh <laughs> McLennan, actually. So I... I um... It seems like a very, very long uh, time ago now, but I, I originally joined Mercer in uh, in Dublin, Ireland in 1990 as a uh, 
initially as a retirement plan actuary and then as an investment actuary. Uh, I stayed with Mercer until I uh, qualified as an actuary in 90, late 95, then went to work for six years for a uh, kind of startup consulting firm, mm-hmm. uh, latterly kind of running it in, in the, uh, the UK for a period of time. Moved back to Mercer in 2002 uh, and set up and ran a, a kind of European group that uh, Mercer had, well, European and then global group that Mercer had doing ALM kind of risk management and uh, pension risk transfer right. uh, for kind of large clients. Moved to uh, New York, which is a kind of a, a strange and uh, longer <laughs> story that I'm sure we won't get into here, but moved over <laughs> to New York in uh, 2009. Uh, with Mercer, moved over to Oliver Wyman at the beginning of uh, 2012. So actually, I've been just over, I've just had my uh, 12th uh, anniversary with uh, Oliver Wyman. Happy so uh, <laughs> somewhere I, I need to uh, clip uh, Marsh and Guy Carpenter before my uh, my career is uh, is complete. But it, it's been a, you know, uh, Marsh for is a great company. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been great to me. It's been a terrific environment for what I'm interested in doing. Terrific. And obviously, in and around the insurance industry for all that time. Yeah, yeah, in various uh, shapes and forms, yeah, and in you know in balance sheet businesses, I would right. say for the uh, for the entire time. Right. Yeah. So let, let's get right into it. You know, I would like to start a little bit doing a, a snapshot and, and a state of the insurance industry view together, and getting a sense a bit of where things are at in terms of meeting customer demand, delivering shareholder value, the winners, the losers, and. Um, it's obviously a bit of a leading question because I know you have a pretty interesting way of looking at value in the industry. So why don't we start there, maybe? Yeah, and, and look, you and I have had lots and lots of conversations uh, about this, so I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll jump in with your uh, views as well. I think the the way you're asking the question there is is, is kind of <laughs> hinting at the fact that uh, you know it'll be slightly hard to describe for anyone uh, anyone listening, but we, we have various kind of publications out there, as you know, in, including my first reinventing insurance newsletter that has the chart that I'm, I'm about to describe. But for, for the record, make ask me multiple times, is it possible to attach uh, a slide to the podcast? And the answer was no. So. We decided to, uh, to stay, <laughs> save those uh, listening on their commutes, the hassle. But the, the, so the chart, if uh, folks can picture it, is one that on the vertical axis has five-year total shareholder return as a measure of value creation. And on the horizontal axis has a uh, forward price earnings uh, measure. And you can think about that as really being investors' views of the growth prospects of, right. of the individual company and the, uh, and the industry. And if, if you can picture that scatter plot for public insurers, and I'll keep it uh, simple for the moment and just talk about uh, US public insurers, and then we can kind of expand it globally from there. But what you, what you observe, and there are obviously differences in terms of individual companies, yeah. but what you observe at the most macro level is that the public life insurers are generally in the bottom left-hand right. quadrant of that graph. So what, right. what's that telling you? It's telling you that for what are very often capital-intensive and high beta businesses, they have returned less than uh, the market over the last five years, and they are trading on you know low-mid, I mean, in, in some cases, low-teens, but the, the majority and on average are trading in, in kind of... Um, mid single digit by which i mean 5 6 times yeah. uh, forward p so it it's saying that investors are looking at them they're operating in what are largely very mature markets investors are suspicious doubtful about the ability to generate growth going right. forward and or are concerned about that growth meeting the cost of capital of the business itself so obviously if i'm generating growth and uh, but it's not meeting my cost of capital more growth is bad rather than good so the the life industry is in the yeah. in the bottom left hand corner 
And, and maybe if we pause on this and we can go to the other parts of the charts later. So what that means to your point is, what I'm inferring from this is the life insurance industry is in a unsustainable spot on that chart. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's probably difficult to conclude just from that chart that the industry <laughs> is in an unsustainable spot. And and look, I, I would call out that there are several companies in there that yeah. are in a more sustainable spot yeah, yeah. And, and have, you know, crown jewel capabilities and yeah. businesses that investors value. But I, I think at the core, you look at it, what it's saying is that for core annuity and life markets in the US, and I would say the picture is similar for other developed geographies globally, that investors like the diet that they've been put on of having companies return a lot of capital, yep. not reinvest a lot of that capital in the yep. business. Yep. And they are looking at the ability to differentiate by way of product innovation and distribution and are suspicious that there is a crown jewel there in a lot of cases. Now, a lot of those companies no longer have proprietary distribution. Yep. A lot have products that, while there is some innovation, are generally not that hard to replicate. And as we'll come on and talk about, in a very big component of that, it, the economics are driven very significantly by your ability to generate excess spread within a, a kind of general account. Yeah. And that is a model that is being very heavily disrupted by what we describe, as you know, as asset management-led insurers. Yeah. So it is a asset manager, very often a private uh, equity or debt manager that has what they consider to be a significant capability around sourcing, originating, and structuring private debt that yeah. can be put behind these liabilities. That's causing a lot of disruption, particularly for incumbents that don't have an equivalent capability. Back to your question, yes, I, there is a lot of consolidation already happening yeah, because yeah. consolidation, as you know, yeah. happens either by way of a company buying another, mm -hmm. but in, in the life sector happens by way of reinsurance transactions yeah. occurring. There are also, as you know, just a, a number of kind of life insurers where the question I think you ask when you see them is, is that business at scale? Yeah. Um, you know, does the landscape need that number of balance sheets yeah. doing things that are not necessarily that differentiated? And I think we're already seeing those kind of tectonic plates move around and, and kind of accelerate uh, pretty fast in the US. It's, you know, watch point by having these players in the bottom left of your chart, yeah. right? And yeah. once you kind of, uncover what's happening, consolidation, reinsurance transactions, uh, the advent of that asset management-led model, right, that has really disrupted a lot of things lately. Yeah. And what is left is, if I'm not going down that route, the expectation would be, do I have proprietary capabilities around distribution, around product innovation? Yeah. And to the point you were saying, you know, at points, distribution has been outsourced and all these things. So these companies can at times be left in a pretty difficult position as a result. Yeah, they, they can. And if I take us off in, you know, a slightly brighter direction, Please. and you and I know this very well, <laughs> I think, is that, look, the irony of it in a lot of ways is that you, you think about what a life insurer is at the core, and it's an institution capable of manufacturing and delivering in a retail setting a guarantee to somebody wrapped around something that they care about. At the highest level, that is about financial security for an individual, right? Yeah. And they want financial security and an ability to get certainty around things that they are worried about. 
if you abstract that up to the highest level, what that tends to get referred to as as is is as financial wellness. Yeah. And yep. on any number of measures, uh, financial wellness is a massive opportunity mm -hmm. in the U.S. So there there is a huge opportunity that has not been cracked by anybody to go after what is a, you know, either white or gray space in the U.S. that, mm -hmm. that you would think more insurers would be investing more heavily around, yeah. where in reality, I think the vast majority of them appreciate that there's an opportunity there, but cracking that opportunity requires a significant risk appetite yeah. in terms of trying things with an, the foreknowledge, I think, that eight out of 10 things that you try are going to fail but that within the two may be a path to a much brighter future that would yeah. see you kind of growing. On the one hand, I think it's a huge opportunity. On the other hand, I kind of um, look and go, who is really going after that and why aren't they going after mm -hmm. it? And as you know, I, I would say nobody is really going after it to the extent that I think they really need yeah. to. And yeah. one of the handicaps in terms of them going after it is that most public life insurers, as I mentioned, have gotten themselves into a position where returning capital to shareholders yeah, has become, yeah, yeah. if not the primary goal, then one of the top goals. And once you're in that position, it's very hard to convince shareholders yeah. that you're going to retain more money right. in, in order to invest, to go after something that looks as uncertain as this. And I, I really think whoever can crack that conundrum, yeah. uh, I, I think may lead us to a, to a better place for the industry. That's what, I, that's what I really hope happens. But here, you need to shift from value to growth you need to shift the way your organization is set up. And I think another point that's important to your point on financial wellness, what I found oftentimes is it can be mostly a code of marketing paint on top of, on top of I'm just going to yes. push my existing products yes, agree. versus, you know, a broader ecosystem of solving a broader ecosystem of needs from customers that I may not solve by myself. I may need to partner with, to partner with others. So I feel like it's not like any of these problems are unsolvable, but it feels like the life insurance industry has a lot of these problems to solve at once. There isn't only one way forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think if you look at the, it's probably wrong to describe them as bookends because they're not necessarily <laughs> mutually exclusive, right? But route one is I am going to be an asset management led yep. insurer. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The primary thing I'm concerned about in that model is my asset management capability. Yes. And what I'm really concerned about is at the end of the day, because things will, will go through a process of shaking out, do I have an asset management capability yeah. with asset origination and structuring that's at scale yeah. and capable of competing with mm -hmm. the bigger PE firms? Who are the, so, I mean, right. as you know, you know, the archetype of the model is uh, Apollo Athene yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, in Europe, Athora. KKR has Global Atlantic, Carlisle has Fortitude, yep. Aries has kind of its own kind of, and, and Blackstone has like a, a lots and lots of, yep. of yep. kind of footprint in that space as well. Mm -hmm. So these are very large, successful kind of private equity and debt yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. firms mm -hmm. that are viewing an insurance balance sheet as one leg of funding for the core operation. Right. Now, if I'm starting as an incumbent, I can choose to go in that direction because to your point about re-rating on that graph that we described, the private equity firms are in the top right-hand quadrant. Right, so right. they are well-perceived, have delivered like strong returns and are rated for growth going forward. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm in the bottom left, I can look at that and go, I want to replicate that model. Yeah. But the question I need to ask myself then is, do I have the resources, capabilities, and am I organized properly mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm, of flipping mm -hmm. my model yep. on its head? Mm -hmm, right? yep. You know, as you know, we had that kind of, 10 ideas for CEOs paper 
that one was strong last year, very strong this year in terms of what we did. But the two others that are in there that that are different ways out are one that says you need to 10x your innovation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is, that's the route through to, I'm going to do something different yeah. and really grasp the nettle of this challenge of doing something uniquely different yeah. for a big enough group of consumers that this thing will lead me to a different place. Yeah. With all the incumbent challenges that we've talked about, the, the one that's a little bit of a, I won't describe it as a middle ground in that there are players out there, I think, that have a significant position in it, but it is the the one we said, know what your secret sauce is. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, you know, what, what I see playing out a little bit is that there are insurers in the landscape today that aren't headed for being the asset management-led insurer, mm-hmm. don't have proprietary distribution and proprietary relationships with consumers, and are kind of in the mindset that somehow product innovation and distribution is a sustainable value-adding position for mm-hmm. consumers. Yep. And that, as you know, is one that requires the most careful exploration and, and pressure testing right. because it's not obvious to me that is articulated well enough and executed well enough yep. to really be something different. Yep. So that those three are become an asset manager-led insurer, 10x your innovation, or you know, understand what your secret sauce is at a very deep level. So it's not I appreciate I can sound a bit uh, down on the on the life insurance industry at times. I'm actually not. I think there's just a future position that looks very different to where we are today, yeah. part of which is very rapidly emerging, another part of which I would like to see emerge much more, which yeah. is that innovation point, because I, I just think it's it's not about dividing today's pie in a better way. It's about creating a new pie, and, yeah. and I think that would that would benefit everybody. Yeah. And so everybody who has not already gone down that path needs to think now or very soon which of these three paths, you know, assuming that's the three options, they need to go relatively soon. So we talked on the bottom left about you, uh, life insurers. We talked about P players in the top right. Who else do you got where on this? Yeah, card? I mean, it, it, and look, it, it's a, um, as you know, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's a helpful way to think about the industry construct generally. Look, there are probably four sets of, other dots on the page. There, there are the, the PNC carriers. And even within the PNC carriers, this is maybe I, I won't stick to my four because it's either four or five, depending on, <laughs> on the way you do it. But within the PNC carriers are, you know, those that are heavily commercial, yeah. those that are heavily kind of retail, by which I mean auto and home. And although we don't have too many examples of it in the US, arguably AIG, although AIG with the corporate spinoff is kind of busy becoming a, a PNC carrier rather than a multi-line. But if you look globally at some of the largest carriers are multi-line. So, yeah. you know, Allianz, Zurich, uh, Generali, AXA. So th- those dots are spread around the page. Yeah. I would say are generally in a better position than life, have more dispersion in them. So if, if you look at, in fact, I was just looking at it yesterday. I don't know if it's still the case today, but at least <laughs> briefly yesterday, Progressive was the largest insurer globally by market cap. And Progressive, as you know, is a large auto and home player in, in the US. It is in the top right-hand corner of that uh, yeah. of that chart and has yeah. had an exceptional run in, in terms of value creation. Right. We can come back and talk about it, but I, I think has has done it really around, you know, innovation and distribution, discipline and underwriting, significant depth in in data and analytics, and really sticking to a very strong investor story and a, a strong set of, of execution capability internally. The other carriers tend to be somewhat distributed on the page, depending on what they've been in. So as you know, those that are kind of more heavily indexed to ENS have had a very run, good run recently. 
there's an element to their kind of geographic footprint and where they've been in terms of growth prospects. But the PNC carriers are kind of distributed on a, you know, a 45 degree line yeah. from somewhere near the, the life guys to up towards the PNC guys. The other ones on the page then are, are the asset managers. Asset managers, I would say, again, have, you know, there, there is a lot of pressure in that system in right. terms of scale, in terms of the push into alternatives, in terms of, you know, kind of various different, different factors and features. You know, again, there's a set of dispersion in there and an overlap with the business. And then the other one, you know, which is, is perhaps the last comment I'll make and then I'll pause is that the brokers yeah. are also in the top right-hand corner yeah. of the chart. So if if you take MMC, Gallagher, Aon, Brown & Brown, kind of WTW, um, they are rated for continued growth yeah. and have provided returns significantly in excess of the broader stock market yeah. over the last five years in most cases. And really, you know, the insight there, I think that folks tend to take from that chart is that the economics in the landscape overall have indexed more toward distribution than they have kind of balance sheet and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of quote unquote manufacturing that distribution is, is really where a lot of the economics have kind of come out. Now, you know, as you know, you get all sorts of questions then about, you know, will that, is there something carriers should be doing in terms of kind of moving more towards that? How does it work and so forth? But that's, that's the current state of play. The market appreciation is toward the distribution. You know, there's been, I think we've been talking about it for years, which is if you look at the entire insurance ecosystem, where do insurers ultimately land, right? And I, I think what we're describing is, if I, I'm going to take a PNC-centric uh, view of the world is, you know, everything that's balance sheet related, am I going to be taken over by reinsurers and other source of capital, right? Everything that's customer facing, whether it's a corporate customer or, or, or a retail customer, is this, you know, what the broker is doing and continuing building on? Right. And then what is left for me as a competitive advantage, right. right? There's a little bit of a question mark around a lot of these PNC players to determine what's going to be my way forward and how am I going to differentiate myself and how am I going to generate more value and secure either a spot in the top right or make sure I don't go down the bottom left. Yeah. I agree. And again, see if, see, see if you agree with what I'm about to say. I, the interesting thing for me about the PNC landscape, though, is that it is a much richer landscape of levers that I can pull yeah. mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a management team yeah. in terms of how I want to go about creating that value. Right? If you look at it on the, on the property and casualty side, there is a lot of ability, but not without a lot of challenges to differentiate on underwriting. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I think you can look at the landscape and clearly pick out people who are more disciplined on underwriting, more yeah, disciplined in terms right. of capital, more disciplined in terms of their reinsurance strategy, yeah. how they think about it, concentration management and so forth. And that's becoming more important, particularly yeah. as, well, I mean, we've had a period where capital has been scarce. I think mm-hmm. we're entering something where kind of markets are getting softer, capital may be more available. But, you know, things like how and where am I comfortable taking cat risk uh, yeah. in a kind of portfolio is, is a very significant question going yeah. forward. So the ability to differentiate on under, underwriting is kind of high. The ability to differentiate on, you know, how I manage my broker relationships, yeah. for example, is is also significant. Yep. The ability to differentiate based on my claims experience is, is kind of pretty high. And particularly on the commercial side, these are global businesses. Mm-hmm. If I'm serving large corporates, they want to serve somebody who can serve them in kind of multiple right. points. So my ability to make decisions about my global footprint is bigger. So yep. I, I think within PNC, there are a richer set of levers that I can pull. But as you know, look, we're coming out of an historic right. hard market cycle. Yeah. And, and then the, the question really for, for a lot of PNC companies is how do I, how am I going to maintain growth as rate is no longer my friend from a kind yeah. of revenue growth perspective? Yeah. 
So, you know, all that to say, I think PNC businesses to some extent are in a, you know, a, a, yeah. a different position. You know, you reference the, the our, our, our latest publication, you know, the future is, is now 10 to do's for insurance CEOs in 24. You know, my question was going to be, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of, a, of an insurance CEO, what would you do? And I don't want to say that you've already answered for the, the question for life insurers, but I, I feel like you're kind of dead. If you were an insurance CEO today, February 2024, what would you do? I'd start with a couple of things that I think are general, no matter what kind of insurer. Yep. I don't mean to kind of bring it up too soon, but you know, as you know, we saw massive hype last year uh, around Gen AI. Yep. And there's also, as you know, an interesting piece of research that we've done looking at industries exposure and potential for disruptive innovation driven by Gen AI yep. with, with kind of a framework that looks at, you know, the structure of the industry and the structure of the roles in it, and also the amount of value that can be created uh, kind of through roles. And it's very clear from that analysis that insurance is a place that has very high positive disruptive yep. potential in, mm -hmm. in terms of somebody's ability to do something. But also, as you know, I would say, and, and it's maybe just a function of where we are in, in, the, in the cycle with it, that most of what we saw our clients do with AI last year was really almost a grassroots effort yep. to try and educate a workforce around That's it, right. to release it into the organization, to begin to conduct pilots, to begin to learn. All of that, I think, is obviously to the good. But what we haven't seen yet is somebody top-down really manage to where the biggest disruptive areas are and really go after those. And that's something I think needs more attention. The other general point, and this is like somewhat tactical, but I, I think is important in some areas, is that almost every insurer that I talk to is not comfortable, happy, satisfied, delighted with you know, their ability to get insights fast from some combination of their kind of finance and actuarial teams. Yeah. Right? You know, why is that becoming more important? I think it's becoming more important because in a lot of cases, the external environment is accelerating. Yep. In a lot of cases, rules have changed in terms of how I think about capital yep. and I, I'm not able to think and pivot fast enough. The, the literal rules. like Literal rules, yeah, 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 exactly. As in, you know, <laughs> you, need, you need to think about capital this way, you need right. to hold it in these places, yep. you need to manage to this ratio. In other cases, and this is particularly true on the life side, the, the speed and agility of the competitors I'm going up against is very different to what has been there historically. Yeah. And I need a machine that is capable of allowing me to make decisions much faster and decide where I want to move things. Yeah. So I, I would say that's another area which is, is really around capability. For PNC insurers, you know, it's not quite the, the highest order question. This question around, you know, I'm coming off a an historic cycle of hard market pricing yeah, in just about yeah. all lines. And it's clear that that's beginning to moderate in, in a number of places. The pace of moderation and, and the kind of ultimate endpoint, I think, will kind of change. But that brings up lots and lots of issues around how should I be positioning now to ensure that relative to others, I sustain momentum. Yeah stay in the lines that I want, maintain the relationships that I want, while also maintaining profitability. And then look, as, as you know, the, the, the one perennial, I think, but it's a perennial that, that kind of picks up every time is, uh, you know, really around what we would describe as, as kind of performance transformation, but performance transformation with a cost element. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would say, 
six out of ten of of the um, uh, of any you know set of management teams that you pick up will will talk now about the cost programs that they're doing, kind of yeah. efficiency, how they're thinking about it. I think the focus of those uh, changes pretty meaningfully, and and the tone of a lot of those conversations, I would say, is look, we've been running cost programs. You know, it, it's not new that we're running a cost program, yeah. <clears throat> but now we need to. Um, we need to think about how we do things slightly differently as we kind yeah. of move forward. And, and one of our ideas, as you know, is, is around this idea of particularly managing, you know, shared services across an organization like a business yeah. rather than like, a you know, a, a just a, a, a cost that yeah. gets handed to me every year. So yeah. it leaves the opportunity for someone adjacent to the insurance industry to kind of come in and offer something that's very differentiated. And again, for some of these PNC players, there's more of an impetus to act relatively quickly. Look, it's one thing to say, we need to spend a lot more on innovation. Right. What do you think at the heart of it, whether I'm a life insurer, a PNC carrier, any, anything, what do you think I need to do fundamentally differently, especially as a CEO or C-suite executives, what do I need to instigate or, or kickstart to make it happen? I think it comes in multiple parts, actually, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, and and this is not necessarily an order, but as you know, I'll send a little cynical for a minute here, and I, I don't <laughs> just for a minute. To, but like <laughs> most large organizations can stifle innovation like very quickly. Yeah. Right. The the because the organization is tooled to doing things in a certain way, and particularly yeah. if you're a hundred to hundred and fifty year old kind of company, guess what? There's a lot of rigidity to how, yeah. how mach- the machine operates. Yeah. Right. And you got fragmented data, you got fragmented kind of policy admin systems, yep. you've got very large kind of sprawling empires in terms of how decisions get made. So the first thing I'd say is, you know, my experience is unless somebody very senior and almost by definition the CEO is passionate about innovation in a certain area, yep. the ability for that really groundbreaking innovation to succeed, I think is relatively low. So I think it demands a vision around the space yeah. and the passion of a CEO to say, we're going to go after this space. I have an idea how to do it. This is what we're going to do, yeah. right? The things that sit behind that then are really around what's the mechanism by which I'm going to do it. Now, yeah. when, when I say mechanism, as you know, look, th- the reality is if I'm breaking ground, I need to be prepared to fail, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And it is it indexes a little bit more toward a venture capital mindset yep. than it does a, a more mature business management mm-hmm. mindset, which is, you know, I can make a number of different moves. I can say there's an adjacent space where I am going to get into it inorganically and I right. can make an acquisition this way and, yep. and integrate it. Now, I would say the interesting thing to me is that if if you look at it and in particular look at the group benefit space, mm-hmm. then that's adjacent to various things in the health space. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you look at some of the kind of very big players are looking over into that space and saying, hey, do, you know, what do I want to have there? I don't know if it's possible to go the other direction right now that there are insurers that have kind of health businesses, but is there an adjacent space there that I can get into through acquisition? Yep. Okay, there is an inorganic element to it, which is how much risk am I willing to take in yep. order to buy that business over there, integrate it and, and kind of create a synergy. But at the other end of the spectrum is I'm going to begin to do things organically and I need to experiment and I need to learn and I need to be prepared to invest. I need to understand how I'm going to stage investment. I need to have a portfolio of things that I'm learning from and they can't be hobbies that folks have off the side of their desk. And I'm going to manage that portfolio myself. There's a framework for doing that that says, here's how to run 
an incubation business unit or an innovation business unit yeah. with that same kind of venture discipline in it. Yeah. I think organizations need to, you know, I would like to see organizations do more of that. Yeah. And then, as you know, there's an element to it in in terms of culture that says, look, hey, it's okay to fail. Like, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not asking you guys to right. do this stuff. This is the way we're going to do. We're going to move people around. The most successful companies, I think, are those where at least some of those conditions have held. And somebody, you always get somebody looking back and going, yeah, that was super obvious what they did there. Yeah. But the point was, it wasn't obvious at the time. Yeah. And it, it involved a certain amount of risk taking and kind of moved on. It requires a vision and, and level of conviction, I think, from the uh, from the top. Ultimately, it needs to start from the top also because the conviction needs to be made in the boardrooms and yeah. with the shareholders. And to your point, there's an element of what am I expecting from the, from the yeah. stock? There needs to be new metrics or different metrics and a clear through line between, you know, how am I going to measure success from innovation? And it's very different from a more mature business down the line, right? In a way, I've got to build a learning engine and run yeah. that scale, right? Yeah. I, uh, I agree. I really like that uh, learning engine terminology. Particularly when it comes to kind of shareholders and boards and the outside world, you've got to earn permission yeah. to do more and more. Right. Uh, and I, I think that um, building that permission is, like we said, a tough thing to do in various parts of the landscape and um, particularly in life. I, I think it's really critical. And it's interesting. I mean, to your point, it's like we keep talking about, you know, setting the vision is great, but then what's your beachhead? What's your starting point? And how do you build momentum progressively? Essentially, yeah. that's what you describe. Also, what are the first proof points am I going to demonstrate to earn the right to do more, right? Yeah. From the board, from... Yeah, the how, do I, how do I get myself onto the flywheel? Right. right. So fascinating. I'd like to shift gear as you look across, you know, the Americas, Europe, Asia. You know, what are some of the flavors and differences that you've, you've been picking up? And I know, I mean, you've been spending time in Europe. I know you were at the International Insurance Society Symposium in, in Singapore a few months back. And obviously engaging with folks across across the different markets, what strikes you as the big differences between these uh, these different regions? The biggest life markets in globally are super mature. Yeah. And if you look at it, the story that we started to describe has started in the US and is yeah. is moving to the UK and it yeah. is looking at Japan and yeah. and you know even even with the um, kind of issues with a couple of examples of the, the kind of privately backed uh, insurers in, yeah. in Europe, I think that will begin to happen pretty quickly there too. And it's interesting because obviously there's different flavors, different uh, different challenges and, and opportunities. But having uh, spent some time in, in Asia recently, I think if you look at a lot of these markets, the two distribution avenues, the two main distribution avenues for life insurance are agents right. and banks. Yeah. And in both of these cases, there's huge risks around, around these things. I mean, you see bank assurance is dependent on partners. And on the agent side, what I found absolutely fascinating is, yes, it was and has been the way to go. And it was a very prolific opportunity for everyone. And then COVID hit. And suddenly, many more gig worker opportunities arose. And for whomever was considering getting into the agent workforce, there were many more interesting avenues available. And now as a life insurer, using this as one of my primary channels, I'm at risk of essentially not being able to use that channel anymore. So right. how do I reinvent it? How do I make it more attractive? How do I potentially consider alternate opportunities? I feel like we're seeing, again, different, but similar kind of problematics as well in, in these different yeah. markets. The other 
maybe switching away from um, from life for a moment, I, I think in a way, the other interesting thing, particularly relates to Asia, but also as it relates to other places, I mean, we've been talking a lot about global A&H businesses and global kind of, you know, health, yeah. the embedding of insurance yeah. in kind of yeah. customer journeys yeah. for relatively low transaction yeah. events, but yeah. at kind of very high volume, mm-hmm. um, I think is, I mean, you, you see it in lots and lots of places, but I think in particular, it seemed to me, a lot more of the conversation in Asia was around those kind of business models yep. and, and mm-hmm. the way that works. And that's interesting to see that. I would say I don't see huge differences within commercial PNC businesses in, yep. in terms of the regions. It, mm-hmm. The factors tend to be kind of somewhat similar. Yep. And then the multi-lines, as I said, tend to be a little bit more of a European yep. uh, kind of phenomenon, yep. uh, somewhat driven, I think, by the evolution of, of kind of... Um, needing to have a broad product shelf for a set of agents in kind yeah. of various home countries and, and so forth. But um, and, yeah. and to your point on, on embedded insurance, what I find interesting is, again, it's back to what we're discussing. I mean, there, there is a very transactional way to think about this, but there is also an element around how can I, you know, have a broader offering that either I'm orchestrating and I have my set of products and a, a set of partner products that I'm delivering or you know, I'm part of a broader ecosystem. Oliver Wyman, we're part of MMC. We're very much embedded into the insurance industry, no pun intended, after everything we talked <laughs> about. We talked a little bit about Oliver Wyman's value proposition at the top, but the ambition, the vision, the kind of hard problems we're looking to help our clients with. Can you, can you unpack this a little bit for us? I feel like this is very much something I'd love to, to get your take uh, on here. What we want is to be uniquely valuable to our clients, our clients being insurers and asset managers and and those kind of, you know, moving around in that ecosystem. And we generally think about how do we create that value in four kind of transformation moments, right? So the first, and I'll I'll kind of give you the transformation moments at a high level and then kind of double click on each. There's customer-led transformation, which is that I want to figure out a way or I am transforming myself around unique value creation for the customer, which is consistent with what we're talking about. The the second is performance transformation, which is I want to improve the bottom line of my business in in some way. The third is deal-driven transformation, which is I'm going through, I either want to buy something or I want to sell something. It's going to be transformative in in terms of the value of my business. And the fourth is stakeholder-led transformation, which which in some cases can be an external stakeholder, as in Mm -hmm. an activist investor or somebody. But more often is I have a new management team, I have a new uh, executive in this role, I have something kind of driven by a change in some stakeholder inside the uh, inside the organization and if i look at it you know we're orienting ourselves around serving the industry in those four transformation yep. moments you know in one way there's very little that's happening that's meaningful that you can't assign right. to one of those right. the customer led transformation is just what yep. we're talking about how do i reorient the industry to create more right. value for individual customers it can be how do i crack financial wellness how do yep. i really go after the sme space for yep. kind of property and casualty the performance transformation is just what we were talking about which is you know how do i use gen ai to really transform what i'm yep. doing inside the organization how do i move from a cost view to a a kind of profit center view? Mm -hmm. How do I really change the nature of what it is that I do and how I go after it? The deal drum, when we have any number of examples of of IPOs or restructuring or various Mm -hmm. things, and the stakeholder one is really, you know, as management teams turn over and and that tends to go in cycles. But, you know, if you take a CEO with a tenure of five to 10 years, then every time that kind of turns over, you, you kind of step into that space and that happens kind of very regularly. So those are the moments we're trying to do. The other part then is, is your question about, you know, what's exciting about Oliver Wyman in that space and how 
do we think we're kind of right. uniquely placed to help? And uh, I'd say a few things, and I, I, I'd echo some of what I kind of said at the beginning. W- one is, you know, we're, we're a management consulting firm with a world-class actuarial capability specialized in insurance and asset management sitting inside what is one of the world's largest global, I would say, powerhouses right. of anything that moves in insurance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I kind of joke that, you know, if, if you think of the amount of knowledge that we have in 1166 here in the uh, in New York, you know, show me another building in the world that has that <laughs> footprint into what's happening inside in the insurance field. Right. So I think we bring a unique set of kind of insights and capabilities. And as you know, we also want to do it in a way where partnering with our clients in doing it. We're kind of working shoulder to shoulder with them. We're not, as you know, kind of competitors with kind of various different styles. I would say what's unique to us is we're kind of content and specialist focused, but with the ability to deliver it with a kind of transformative view and lens on it, yeah. benefiting from from a lot of the knowledge that sits in the uh, yeah. in the organization. And, and look, at, you know, what excites me about it then, because how are we talking internally about doing that? And as you know, we, we have this um, phrase that makes people smile that we are already a long way toward being a juggernaut consulting business uh, mm-hmm. in that space. We have a very large team with a lot of expertise, but we have our eye on, you know, something that would, you know, very much kind of two, three X that over the course of the next five years right. as, as we go after. And we think we have a permission to win and an ability to deliver value, I think, right. that, uh, you know, we're, we're very excited about. Terrific. And obviously helping drive a lot of the change that we've been talking about in the last yeah. uh, few minutes. Yeah. Well, that was, that was super, super insightful. I really enjoyed our time together. Maybe before we wrap, Care to share a few words of wisdom for our audience based on everything we talked about? I mean, look, our, our audience is uh, is varied, I, I think. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, I look, the industry we serve is kind of massive, complicated and uh, and global. It, you know, if I had a magic wand and was looking at it, I think there's a lot of transformation I'd, I'd like us to support in the life space to take the industry to kind of a better spot. I think the PNC side of things is starting in a very different position, but I'm, I'm very excited about the um, transformation of mm-hmm. AI and the, you know, the, the opportunity for that and also the kind of um, next pivot of the industry through the kind of software pricing uh, cycle. And then on the uh, the kind of broader asset management and private capital side, you know, it's a complicated jigsaw, but I just think this adding a balance sheet to those models and, and kind of using that to fund what is kind of a very sensible kind of position is, is very exciting. So look, I would say, you know, thanks to our clients and those that are kind of trusting us to do this. And we're excited to partner with the industry. Terrific. Well, Mick, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That was uh, Mick Maloney, uh, Global Head of Insurance, Asset Management, and Actuarial at Oliver Wyman. I'm Paul Ricard. Thanks for listening. For more information about our Reinventing Insurance series, you can find everything on our website at oliverwyman.com slash reinventinginsurance. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.